Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the 1951 Ealing comedy, The Man in the White Suit, Alec Guinness plays a textile chemist who invents an indestructible, impossible to stain fiber, which leads to a quiet attempt by his bosses to pay him off. Things quickly spiral out of control, and a violent mob chases him down their milltown streets. And the reason is obvious. His discovery poses a grave threat to their industry. In the decades since the film's release, both planned obsolescence and the use of proprietary parts that make it nearly impossible to fix the things our livelihoods depend on, from computers to tractors, have become the norm. In the March issue, Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson explores the right to repair movement, which seeks to restore our ability to maintain, rather than replace, the things we own. I spoke with Evitz Dickinson about the financial, ecological, and social implications of that movement, which leads to larger questions about ownership. Can we really say it's ours if we're not allowed to repair it? I want to ask about sort of a larger question that is posed by the right to repair movement. And it's that it seems like tinkering is kind of this quintessentially American thing. And so many of our national myths and historical figures are kind of bound up in that. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how the right to repair movement and this like the idea of the the tinkerer out in their shed working on something kind of reflects the moment we're in or a difference from the moment we're in. Yeah, I think that's such a great question, right? Because we do have this American ethos of really, you know, independent invention and innovation and nothing more so than the tech industry, right? Where the whole myth is, you know, a couple of guys in their garage tinkered around and forever changed the world with what they built. I mean, that's the that's the story of Apple. That's the story of a lot of computer and tech companies. And I think what really has galvanized the right to repair movement is a group of advocates around the world, not just in the United States, because of course, Apple is everywhere and other companies like that really are global now. And the ways in which ownership has really changed. Like for me, it's sort of started to become apparent when I started to realize that I couldn't repair things that I thought I owned. And that even when I had a computer issue and wanted to take it to the guy up the road who was that kind of typical, like amazing computer guy where you walked in and, you know, he was like the Simpsons character where he, you know, has a cup of coffee and he's grumpy and he, you know, just thinks I'm the dumbest person in the world. But we had a great rapport and he fixed what was broken and he's no longer there. He went out of business in large part because the way we now are able to access repair for a lot of the devices we own make it impossible for us to do it ourselves or to even give it to like a third-party repair person who can help us. We've become a culture that's so used to, you know, the sleek casing of our iPhones that what passes for repair instructions is a read up gossip board about how to put a wet phone into a bag of rice. And that just struck me as so odd, right? I call this our bag of rice problem. And it's that, you know, we don't have even tech manuals available to us. We don't have the sort of things that allow us to tinker the way we used to in the past. 
And a lot of that is because there's been a very concerted effort by manufacturers to make it so that we can no longer tinker. Yes, yes. And I, I, I you know, you're talking a bit about the the history of the tech industry itself, Silicon Valley, this romantic idea that, and for a long time it was, just a bunch of guys in the garage doing whatever. I remember at the start of the Mac versus PC debate, and I use the term debate very loosely because it's just like a competition between these two brands. You know, Apple was often derided because its computers weren't upgradable. You know, the joke was like, uh, yeah, instead of upgrading it, you throw it out. So what do you think changed, you know, in culture or in technology or both that has led us to just being totally enraptured by our shiny phones? Like the concern has just completely disappeared from the consumer side. Yeah. You know, I think that consumers actually are, in fact, still frustrated. I think that there are many of us who have, you know, lifeless iPods and old phones and old laptops sitting in a drawer somewhere that we're not sure what to do with. But I think we all feel like the juggernaut that is technology has made it impossible to address. In effect, you know, we're so dependent on these devices now. They've become so ubiquitous that many of us shrug and assume that there's not much that we can do about it. And really, it's not until something really egregious happens that consumers tend to rise up in mass. So I'm thinking about how in 2016, there was this iPhone debacle where one morning, thousands of iPhone owners suddenly had been locked out of their phones. Their devices simply wouldn't start. They were getting this weird error message and they had no access anymore to their contacts, their photos, their data. And what we learned with that is that Apple has been, like other tech companies, incredibly aggressive over the years in preventing repairs by using software updates that prevent third-party repairs. So what this update had done was it effectively bricked those devices, bricked being the word that they use, of course, in tech to talk about when your once usable technology now basically has the, the use of a brick, it's not doing anything. And, you know, when something big like that happens, consumers got mad, there was a big class action lawsuit, and, you know, Apple mea culpa and gave them their phone uses back. But in general, I think most of us are just so used to the fact that a new upgrade will happen next year, that when something dies, we may or may not be able to get it repaired. And I think we're so used to hearing that phrase of, well, for the cost of repairing it, you might as well just upgrade to the newest model with more storage and sleeker lines and lighter or bigger or faster, whatever it is that they've incrementally changed that then makes us just go ahead and, and pony up for that new device. Right. And I, I mean, design is such a huge part of any sort of handheld device, right? You know, the the idea that this is sleek, the shiny glass, you know, it's sort of the, I don't know, I can't help but think of Steve Jobs, who when he was being treated for cancer, he was about to die, he pulled a tube out of his nose and he was like, this is ugly, get me a different one. <laughs> like he was so committed to a look that it really, like up until the moment he was gone. And I wonder... If you could discuss, you mentioned pentalobe screws, which Apple has developed to prevent non-authorized repairs. And you just mentioned the software updates. So 
to what extent have these design features been copied by other hardware manufacturers? I don't expect you to sort of be like, oh yeah, Kindle uses the blah, blah, blah screw, but <laughs> sort of like, to what extent are these companies kind of looking over each other's shoulders and being like, how can we make our stuff just as hard to take apart? Absolutely. I mean, this is at the heart of the right to repair advocacy movement is that this isn't just tech. This is widespread through most um, consumer manufacturing appliances and devices. So, you know, design wise, Apple wasn't the only one to start doing this, but they're an excellent example of what has been used in the industry and others to make it really difficult to repair. So, you know, design wise, it wasn't even just initially in like the physical hardware. It was also in the fact that very early on, Apple wasn't putting out its tech guides, right? So you couldn't even find a tech manual to understand how to do something as simple as replace a battery. And the goal was they really wanted you to come into the Apple repair shop and actually keep that stream of revenue and repair in-house, so to speak. They really discouraged that third-party repair or intrepid DIYer. And then they started doing things like replacing Phillips head screws, which are universal. And we all have a Phillips head screwdriver somewhere. We all, if you're like me, have to remind yourself which one is the Phillips head and the flathead. But they started using what was known as the Penelope. And it's this five-pointed flower-shaped screw that they first started using like around the mid 2009 era in their MacBook Pro, the 15 inch model. And what it was, was a screw, a screw that nobody had a screwdriver for. It wasn't a standardized screw. And one right to repair person I spoke to kind of compared this to, you know, a car battery being installed in such a way that you couldn't open up your hood and replace it at home or it's exactly that yeah like and buying a car where like the tires are locked on so you can't remove a flat tire and so you know but even then once you were able to get inside so let's say you could get this penelope screw driver and get inside companies like apple and others started doing other things like gluing batteries in place or soldering delicate materials in place so that if you didn't have the right equipment or the right heat gun to get that glue adhesive loose, it was really easy to break stuff. And then you had to go to them anyway and, and have it fixed. And, you know, this is not just Apple, video game consoles, Nintendo, you know, they use the same type of strategy with these tri-wing fasteners. And... It's interesting because, you know, the non-standard screw story is actually one that goes all the way back to like Ford Motor Company back in the day. There's a whole wonderful cultural history to be written on like the evolution of the screw. But <laughs> I think that like really what it is, is like, how can we build our products with things that aren't standardized? So it makes it really difficult for third-party repair companies or for individuals to get inside and, and repair their own devices. And you, you briefly mentioned sort of the, the history of planned obsolescence with other technologies in your annotation. And, you know, the benefits of planned obsolescence are obvious. But what's less apparent is the environmental impact of being unable to open up something and repair it yourself. So I think there's a myth of how much things can be recycled. So to what extent can these technologies be recycled? And what extent are they actually recycled? This is such an excellent question. And I think it's one of the most important questions we need to be asking right now. And of course, the first 
part of that is how long can you keep an item in your use? How, how many of us have had to replace a phone when we feel like we had more life in that phone, but there was something that happened where it just wasn't working optimally anymore and we couldn't figure out what to do about it. So in a lot of cases, we're just getting rid of products before they really end their life cycle because manufacturers have put in hurdles that make it difficult to repair them. So really, even before we start talking about recycling, we want to talk about longevity, right? Like I, I really would love for my current MacBook Air to last a certain amount of time, but I have this sinking suspicion that the day will come where it'll just stop working the way it should and I'll buy another one before I'm ready. And it'll be a great disruption to you because your entire life is on there. Your profession is on there. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to your earlier question of like why consumers are so stuck in this habit. It's like because we're now at a place where, you know, your phone is your wallet and your uh, your camera and your television and your computer and your mobile capacity to keep in touch with work when you're working from home sometimes. I mean, we never, I think, could have predicted that these some of these devices would become so integral to our lives in so many ways that to lose a phone means, oh my God, I've now lost my e-wallet. I need another phone right now. And so we jump into buying a new one. And what that's creating is what's known as e-waste, which is the fastest growing waste stream in the world. And e-waste is anything with a battery or a plug. And I think 2019, it was up like 20% over the five-year high. Like I think we're producing something like almost 54 million metric tons of electric waste in a year worldwide. And in America, I think we're like number two of the producers of this. And a lot of it is going into landfills. And, you know, this stuff can take thousands of years to decompose. And as these electronics break down, of course, they're releasing chemicals like mercury, lead, and cadmium into our soil. And they're, they're leaching into the groundwater and they're ending up in our oceans. So the answer is, is that I think there are some industries looking to recycle and looking to recycle and upcycle. But for the most part, this stuff is just ending up either in landfills or even worse in incinerators where they're being burned. And you can just imagine what that's doing to air quality, right? Yeah. And part of the lie of Silicon Valley is that it's a rechargeable battery that you don't have to replace it. But the fact of the matter is you do. This is worse than like Duracell batteries or whatever, like a double A, because at least, well, I don't know. There's that episode of John Wilson where he kind of makes it clear that it's hard to recycle those properly. But I mean, the actual technology for these rechargeable batteries, they're also, they take a great deal of minerals, like extractive, like mining it takes mostly coal to generate electricity. So these the environmental impact doesn't sort of stop with having it go into the soil or leach into the ecosystem. It's kind of more holistic than that. But again, that's all kind of brushed away or greenwashed slightly because they have good marketing. Exactly. And interestingly, you know, the battery life is one way that they've realized they can sell more devices. Because if the battery stops working and you can't repair or replace it, then you're going to upgrade. Because really, I mean, back in the 1920s, 
manufacturers in America started realizing it didn't make a lot of sense to make long lasting devices and long lasting cars and long lasting material items, because then you weren't going to buy new ones. If your job was to sell something, you needed to keep selling it, or you needed to create a market for it, which is how we started getting into the sort of annual model upgrade, right? Sometimes people are buying a new phone, not because they really need it, because they want the rose gold option. <laughs> they need to feel cool. <laughs> they need yeah. to with the Joneses, the classic American trouble. But, you know, looking at this right to repair advocacy that's happened over the years, you know, there's been some really nebulous stuff that's happened. So one that I'm thinking of now is back in 2017, it was a group of kind of tech savvy Reddit users who discovered that Apple had created a software update. So, you know, you always get those software updates on your phone that you avoid doing because you don't feel like <laughs> shutting your phone down to do them, right? And so here was yet another software update. And what these users on Reddit discovered was that the update was written specifically to slow down the performance of iPhones with older batteries. And so Apple said the reason was to help detect a phone's processor speed, but of course they weren't transparent with consumers and said, Hey, this is why, you know, we're, we're putting this into the new software update and effectively slowing down your phone. What it did was cause a lot of people to say, Hey, my phone's slow and go buy a new device. And that of course led to one of the major class action suits that I think has helped us get to a place where the right to repair arguments are starting to be more public because the more that manufacturers do these sorts of things, frankly, the more upset consumers are getting. And this is happening across consumables. You know, front load washers, right? Those are so popular, those front load washing machines, but they're designed in such a way that their bearings can easily go. And like the bearing itself is 50 bucks, but to repair it, you actually have to take the whole thing apart using proprietary software and bring in a a person who knows how to do it. And the next thing you know, you're like, all right, I'll just buy a new one. It's going to cost too much to repair. And this is happening everywhere. So now what's interesting is you're seeing governments start to get in and say, wait a minute, we need some transparency here. And in 2021, last year, the French government began requiring manufacturers to assign their electronic devices what they call a repairability score. And it's based on a handful of things like how available are spare parts and what do they cost? And are you giving consumers technical documents free of charge so that they can fix their own things? And I don't think it comes as a shock to learn that Apple, Microsoft, Samsung, lots of others have abysmal scores on this repairability scoreboard because they, in fact, are designed to not be easy to repair. Yeah. And speaking of government, in Quainer times, Microsoft faced an antitrust lawsuit for putting their browser in an explorer onto all of their computers. And now, instead of preventing a company from only allowing its proprietary software on devices, there's this legislation that just requires the company to sell you the tools to fix their products to make it slightly more transparent about how easy it is to fix. And how did we get to this point? from a legal perspective, because it seems so sad and regressive. <laughs> well, you know, anyone who is interested in knowing this larger history really needs to get a brand new book that just came out this year called The Right to Repair, 
Reclaiming the Things We Own. It's written by a guy named Aaron Perzanowski, and he's a lawyer and a professor who is an expert on ownership in the digital economy. And his book is excellent because he really sets up an important pre premise, which is that, you know, as a species, humans have always been ones to repair with every new technology we invent, you know, whether it's pottery getting cracked, we've figured out ways to repair it, whether it's the space telescope, right? Like we are a species of invention and invention requires repair, but there have been these bevy of tools that manufacturers have created over the last several decades, IP law, hardware design, software restrictions, pricing strategy, and of course, all the marketing messages that basically are preventing us from fixing our own things. And what's happened with right to repair is there have been a lot of small legal battles won over the years as consumers and governments have filed lawsuits against manufacturers, like the ones I mentioned earlier against Apple and bricking the iPhone. And what's interesting is that this right to repair movement has really coalesced globally in the last couple of years. They've written model legislation. Right now here in the U.S., there's like over 20 states who have model legislation that they're considering for some form of right to repair consumer legislation. And, you know, part of this is because they have been going to manufacturers without success and saying, can you please, can we use standardized screws? Can we use standardized materials so that you're not creating these proprietary designs only to make it hard to repair. And there's been a lot of pushback from obviously companies who see this as a threat to their bottom line, but now they're starting to get enough attention from both advocates, consumers, and governments that you're starting to see movement towards both law and regulatory requirements to make it easier to repair what we own. And, you know, you said that the right to repair movement is kind of global. How have people made those connections? Like, is it just through things like Reddit or are there sort of like separate networks that people are going through and, and meeting? And I mean, just to get involved in some way, how has it coalesced? That's a great question. So in my article for Harper's, in my annotation, I do mention a company called iFixit. And iFixit is this really interesting story. It was founded back in 2004 when a guy named Kyle Lyons and his then college buddy, Luke Souls, both tried to repair their own MacBook and like couldn't figure out how to repair it because there were no online instructions. And they basically took it apart and did it themselves. And they realized then as Kyle told me, like this was a much bigger problem. They realized that companies were trying to keep them out of their devices. And so they created a website called iFixit. And iFixit is a fascinating website because it's both a, a staff of people who work for the company, but also a really wide sort of community of fixers who get together and create step-by-step -step repair guides and repair you know, takedowns of lots of electronic consumer products. So it's not just Apple phones and computers, it's also toasters and Dyson vacuums. And because they set that up really as sort of like a user-generated community where people contributed, in some ways they helped to coalesce 
people from all over the world who, who were having the same problem and didn't have a name for it, but were really desirous of being able to fix their own stuff. Now, I fix it as a lot of really smart, kind of <laughs> more technologically advanced than myself. Um, folks who are able to really like get in and fix things. But there's other sites like repair.org, which is a repair association, which has really done a lot of advocacy work to bring together small businesses, small manufacturers, member companies. They have like over 400 member companies that are saying, you know, this isn't just bad for the, the consumer and for us to own the products. It's also killing small repair businesses. And it's gotten to a point where, you know, Last summer, even President Biden went on record when he signed an executive order asking for more right to repair regulation that basically it's becoming sort of a monopolistic business practice now that needs to get broken up. And so there is a very strong online presence and a couple of key players who have done an excellent job of coalescing people around the globe around these issues. Yeah, it's incredibly important. And it's it'll be, I mean, it, we always seem to be on the verge of, you know, finally breaking up Silicon Valley companies, sort of breaking their control. And, and it never we never quite get there, I think, possibly because the arguments from the right, like we're being shadow banned is not, not the strongest thing to come up against. The kind of the arguments yeah. for it are a little dumb. And so, it, it, you know, it's heartening to hear that the right to repair movement actually has something that like, you probably can't politicize this, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting too, because I think that a lot of companies have also been really good at telling us we're not good at repairing our own stuff, which goes back to one of our earlier conversations about, you know, the intrepid American tinkerer, which is one of the arguments Apple often used about why they made it difficult to repair and said that you really should use an authorized dealer is because they just didn't want you to get hurt, <laughs> which is kind of like, I'm sorry, what? Like literally we are a country built on, you know, people tinkering with their cars and, you know, and this, this, this right to repair, it, it goes to places like farm country, because one of the biggest defenders in this has been John Deere tractors, where they've made it incredibly difficult for farmers to repair their own tractors. So think about that. Like think about a farmer who by the very definition of the job is incredibly capable at doing a number of things, um, you know, the least of which is trying to keep a farm going in this day and age. And you, you plunk down a hundred plus thousand dollars on a tractor and you can't repair it unless you go through a John Deere dealership is, is just asinine. It's just silly. Yeah, no, because life isn't hard. As you said, life isn't hard enough for a farmer. They have to, <laughs> have to like try and try, especially financially. Yeah. And like the idea is that this starts to bring into question what is ownership, right? Like if you buy a tractor, do you own it if you can't repair it? And and right for repair advocates say, no, you don't. In order to own something, you have to have the capacity to fix it and do with it what you need. So one really low tech example is take a book. I have a lot of books. I want to loan you a book. It's my book to loan. But if I buy that book on Kindle there is now a relationship with a company and that book is only available to me in one form. And so it's really interesting because the one of the larger questions here is what does it mean to own something in this day and age? And I think people are really grappling with that question. 
Exactly. I think, you know, that's true of anything you buy. The myth of availability, like the myth of, you know, any movie that you want to buy is available at any time. And it's not. Because even if you buy something, they can take it away. Yes. Yes. So, you know, anything to do with the cloud, it's like, okay, so this is convenient. But again, we're moving further away from traditional ownership. And again, this you know, to go way back before the Industrial Revolution, before kind of modernity set these technological advancements into motion and they just keep happening, 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 a sign of a good product was how long it lasted and that you could repair it and you could just have it for the rest of your life. And that's just, you know, with fast fashion, with tech, that's just not the case. Yeah. And I think what you're bringing up is a really important cultural and values shift, right? Like I grew up with grandparents who survived the depression. I had a grandfather who had that amazing workbench down in the basement where, you know, any Saturday afternoon you'd go down and there'd be a cold can of beer and some project taken apart, you know, on his workbench and he'd fix it. And, you know, now we're a culture that's very used to just tossing and getting rid of and buying what's new. And, one of the things that was re- that's really struck with me from my interview with Aaron Kersnowski for this story in, in Harper's is something that he said that, you know, this isn't just about fixing legislation. This isn't just about government regulation. You know, we can't look at those things as being the answer to what's happening here. Really fixing this culture of repair is, is going to be about changing our very behavior as consumers and citizens who think that buying fresh, fast fashion every season and throwing out things that may still sort of work or demanding the new, uh, you know, instead of the long lasting is, is really what got us here. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a chicken and an egg, right? Like the manufacturers have done an excellent job at marketing to our desire and human beings, you know, are very desirous of, of, of certain objects. And, you know, think about when the first iPhone came out and the fact that it was so chaotic, people waiting in line for days to get the new phone over what, right? You know, what built that mass interest? It's so fascinating the ways in which human beings can be led into a frenzy of desire. And I think that some of the questions raised in the right to repair movement are these questions of our own choices as consumers and what we value and what we decide to do with our dollars. You know, that's very hard when there's no alternatives, right? It's not like somebody could go out and start their own cell phone company. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. Exactly. And so this is, I think, where you're getting this broader consumer frustration, which is to say, I would love, I would, I'm talking about all of this to you from my MacBook Air with my iPhone right next to me, right? I'm using the very things that frustrate me. And I'd really love to figure out how to get off the gerbil wheel. But to find alternatives, to your point, I mean, it it mean it requires a level of huge commitment that is is hard to imagine. I switched to PC after. You did. <laughs> it's great. Sorry, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It's so interesting because yeah, I, I don't. 
I almost feel like PC and Mac people aren't fighting the way they used to anymore. It's no. now, it's, now it's more like we're all getting screwed. <laughs> yeah. Well, now it's and now it's like Android versus like iPhone people. But again, it's like it's so dumb to be to be divided into these camps where it's just like and again, it's like I like my PC because it can upgrade it. I can kind of fix it. Like it's it's not I would say there's a certain there's men of a certain age who are just convinced that Microsoft is evil and therefore they only use Apple products. And I'm just mm. like, look around you, dude. What are you talking about? It's quite the opposite. I would say in terms of who did the worst thing to society, I'm gonna, you know, it's Mr. Turtleneck. Sorry. Like <laughs> <laughs> Well, and again, you're bringing up like this great point, which is that the early years of this, you know, the, the late 70s, the early 80s, you know, it all was this idea of, you know, Apple wasn't just founded on the myth of two guys in a garage. It was also on this idea of bringing computing power to the ordinary people with ordinary budgets. It was seen as David to IBM's Goliath, right? Yeah. And, and to have like a graphic user interface. So you didn't need to know like command line code. Exactly. You know, introducing that, that's huge. And, you know, 1984, like we're recording this. I don't know when it will air, but we're recording this around the Super Bowl. So what's one of the all-time greatest Super Bowl ads ever, right? Is that amazing ad from Apple directed by Ridley Scott, where you've got the woman running and it's Big Brother. And, you know, there was always this idea that they've been so good at making us all in our little camps of battle over each other, Apple versus Microsoft, in some ways becomes beneficial because then it really is about user loyalty, even when that loyalty is misfounded because what you're getting isn't actually worth what you're paying or isn't actually repairable. And I think that that's starting to break down a bit. Well, you said before our conversation that you're not a very technical person and you were coming to this more from sort of like a cultural interest. Have you repaired anything using instructions from iFixit? Or I guess how, you know, as a non-technical person, how difficult to follow or how difficult is it to repair things that you can find on iFixit? Well, I will say I have not ventured into an iFixit repair in part because I think that maybe this is part, I might be a victim of the long story that it's really hard to repair things. I think you hear so many scare tactics and scare stories about you're going to break it and then you're going to end up going back and having to get it fixed anyway. And what I think is great about iFixit is that they aren't Pollyanna about how easy or hard a repair is. They're quite open about what skill it takes and, and level of difficulty, but it's also basically demystifying it. So the more that all of us can have access to a source like that and see how it's done, then of course, we're all going to become a little more comfortable with it. But my comparison is I live in old houses. I've always lived in old houses and I've repaired old houses. And I've spent a lot of time on YouTube, you know, looking up videos of people walking me through something that aren't often from the manufacturer, but are from someone else who said, I know how to fix this. And here, I'm going to walk you through how I did it. And that's been incredibly helpful. I've repaired some, some old toilet leaky toilets. <laughs> I've, I've repaired a few things. Maybe I just need to jump in and, and see if I can replace my battery next time it goes. Yeah. 
We, we live in our houses and we live in our phones differently. However, I understand the, yeah, because I think, again, I'm somebody who, I'm not going to act like I'm like super technically minded, but I'm not someone who has problems with like Ikea instructions generally, unless yes. they're just totally terrible. And, you know, I've taken computers apart. I've put them back together. I've upgraded them. And it's really like, some of it is so simple and it's just that fear that you have to get over. And the important thing to remember is that the fear isn't a financial fear. It's it's this sort of like larger marketing fear. It's a fear of going without something somehow, that somehow your thing will be less. It's 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 everything else but the thing that's broken. And breaking through that is so important. It is. And also that was another scare tactic that really has been used for years, which by the way is illegal, which is you would open up a phone or a computer or a device and it would have a little warning that says you're going to void your warranty if you try and repair this yourself. And the Federal Trade Commission says, you see that on any electronic device, you let us know because that is illegal. And so what a lot of people I think have in their mind is, oh, if I don't do a quote unquote authorized repair, oh, well, then I've devalued my product. I probably am going to lose my warranty. You know, there's been um, legislation and lawsuit again around all of that. And um, they cannot void your warranty in that case. Well, first of all, good luck getting them to honor the warranty in the first place. Because <laughs> it's like, even if something is legit wrong with your smart TV or whatever, good luck. Yes. Well, and also, you know, even when you're buying something online now, notice how they often say, hey, for 220 extra dollars, would you like the extended warranty? And it's going to, and you're like, do I? And then you do, you have that panic of, right. We've lost that corner shop, who's going to repair my stuff relationship. So how long have you been on the phone? Like, how difficult is it even for most of your devices to just find a human being to ask a question to about that device? It is, the obfuscation is there on purpose because effectively they don't want you to <laughs> call them up and ask a question. It's, it's you know, we can't even necessarily get someone on a phone at times to ask very important questions about the things we own. Right. It would be interesting to sort of contrast what's happening with hardware with what's happening with other types of tech companies like PayPal or Netflix. But again, it's 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 perhaps a little bit too different because you can't do planned obsolescence with like a digital wallet. Mm. Netflix's response to sort of planned obsolescence is to just churn out as many TV shows as possible. But, you know, like there's going to have to be a point where the technological differences between these generations are going to be so minuscule that even people who are pretty tech averse are going to be like, well, what am I actually paying for? Absolutely. I mean, if you look back, I mean, just look back at what happened with the iPhone, you know, the leap between the first generation phone and the third generation was huge. I mean, it was a big difference. Today, you know, what are you getting? You're getting uh, more cameras, more facial recognition technology that they can steal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I was just watching a hilarious episode of The Simpsons where Marge is in the future of a few years and her phone has 17 little camera holes on the front, you know? So it's like, that's the joke, right? Because what are you getting? And I think, you know, when you talk about 
these different kinds of technologies like Netflix, when you start to get into, well, what's happening with Hollywood and how that's like that for them, it's about having to shift business model, right? Because at a certain point, you can only get so many users to sign up for your service. Then you have to start to figure out how you generate revenue in compelling and new ways. And here's the thing, that's what's so awesome and equally scary about tech is they are incredibly innovative. So you know, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have imagined having the iPhone in our hands and all that it can do. You know, now that we're starting to move into worlds of virtual and augmented realities and different sensorial mapping of the brain with, you know, the metaverse, <laughs> God only knows what is going to happen. You know, maybe the next step for Netflix is you upgrade to a VR experience, right? So they're going to keep innovating and they're going to keep giving us things that we're going to want to buy because we're a capitalist society built on growth and <laughs> they just yeah. have to keep figuring out how to steal our money. <laughs> but but the other thing about capitalist societies is that the, the end date is stamped on it because yeah. there's going to be a point <laughs> when you just can't do anymore. Yes. Yeah. I mean, or it's, we, or it's, or it's all going to be used up and you can't do anymore. Like there's an end point. There is an end point to an extractive culture, there, to an extractive practice. And literally what we're extracting to build our phones, there is a, a geological end point. And the earth has spoken and it's not happy about what we're doing. And I think that's right. You know, really, we're talking about an extractive economy. And I think the right to repair is really looking at that idea of how do we start to live our lives in a larger, more centered place around that idea of reuse, recycle, repair? It's one of the three R's because we're going to have to. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was great. It's been my pleasure. It was great talking to you. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org slash save to subscribe for only 1697.